0: This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. It was a domestic incident that led to the 2011 stabbing of Reginald Day by his live-in girlfriend. But as police would quickly discover, his attacker was more than just your average citizen in this North Carolina city. This is episode 15, The Crystal Gale Mangum Story.
1: Amy, good to see you today. Hi, Megan. Great to see you, even though I would prefer to see you in person. Happy to have the technology. I
0: know, me too. I miss you. I miss our time together. I know, me too. Um, On a positive note today, uh, some cool announcements. So we got a number of new patrons. And first of all, thank you so much for supporting us. I mean, we just can't tell you how much we appreciate it. They have also written us with just some very nice emails, some case suggestions, which we love. I know that I don't want to spoiler alert here, but we're already looking at one or two of them. And they've also written us with some questions about criminology, about women in crime. And for all the engagement, we just love it. And we're so grateful. Thank you so, so much. And I sent out a bunch of stickers to you guys. So hopefully look for those in the mail. Great. So first we have Cherish F. from Escondido and her friend Bettina got her hooked on our show. So she is doing a shout out to her amazing, lovely legal ladies and their daily true crime chats.
1: Oh, hi, ladies. Thank you so much for listening.
0: I love it. Thank you so much. Thank you both to Bettina and to Cherish. We also have Jacqueline from New Mexico. Hey, Jacqueline, thank you so much. Thank you, Jacqueline. We appreciate the support. We have Jaslyn from Happy Valley, Oregon.
1: Ooh, thank you, Jaslyn. Thank you, Jaslyn. I love
0: the name too. Very cool.
1: Who else do we have, Amy? All right. We also have Jen from Illinois. Thank you, Jen, who also sent us a nice note. Thank you. Awesome. We also
0: have Kelly from Louisiana. Hey, Kelly. Thank you so much for supporting us. And we have
1: Mandy from Connecticut. Not too far from us. Not too far from us. And Mandy sent me a cool case suggestion. Thank you, Mandy. And we also have Kaylin. Ready for this last name? I'm going to try my hardest. Wait,
0: I I just want to preface this. We have Kaylin, who actually, this is the funniest part, wrote in, she wrote in how to pronounce her last name, but said I think it would be funny
1: or wonderful to hear if Amy can pronounce it. So we'll tell gonna... you. Spoiler alert, I probably can't. All right, Kaylin. <laughs> so this is for you, and then we'll correct her. All right, Kaylin Sarneki. C- <laughs> Kaylin Sarneki. Sarneki. I don't know it? which version of that. Do you want to try? All right, go ahead. Try it again. Kaylin, what? All right, Kaylin. Let's try this. Kaylin Sarneki from Aurora says it as a question.
0: But she's pretty much right. Kaylin wrote in that the way to pronounce her name would be Sarnecki. So I think Amy did pretty well, but it took her about six takes to get it. So we'll just keep that (laughs) part in. Um, Thank you for your support. So Kaylin has a question I want to take. So here's Kaylin's question. She wrote, what inspired the two of you to make a podcast that focuses on women and crime? What inspired you more specifically about female offenders? Okay, I'm going to say that our initial inspiration probably came from Direct Appeal, in which we examined the Melanie McGuire case, simply because we had so many things in that case that were unique to female offenders and the way they're judged and the way Melanie was viewed and the way her actions were interpreted. And so many people started writing in about other female cases that interested them and kind of like how to look at this through the gender lens, like is there a double standard for women? Now, I can already tell you that there is because I teach women in crime. So I've already been inspired about female cases. But I think after Melanie's case, there were so many more things that are unique to female offenders that I
1: wanted to explore. And I think that probably covers my interest. Amy, you want to add to that? The only thing I want to say, I'm also very interested how many offenders were once victims and many victims become offenders. So it's interesting to see that relationship And although we do see that relationship with all offenders, not just females, I tend to see it a little more when we talk about female offenders, that victim offender relationship. Amy, isn't it
0: like I I believe the statistics are really alarmingly high about women in prison and levels of victimization. I think it's something like 85 to 90 percent of all women in prison have been victimized. I know
1: it. I have a stat exact one from when I teach the class, but it's high, right? Well, yeah, because you also have a large population of women who are in there for killing their once abusers, whether or not they killed them in self-defense or a battered women's syndrome came up. We talked a little bit about that in an upcoming episode. Okay, Amy, we have another patron.
0: This is Valerie from San Diego. Oh, how I wish I was in sunny San Diego right now. Thank you, Valerie. And Valerie has a question for us. Why do you think that the female serial killer still is not something studied as much as a male serial killer? I'm going to go ahead and take that one since I teach serial killers and women in crime. So, first of all, great question, Valerie. Second of all, women have been historically understudied in the field of crime. And it wasn't until probably the 80s that we really began to look at female offenders. So, We were neglected at first, and now that the research is catching up, I can also tell you that the reason that females are not studied as much is because there aren't as many female serial killers, and that's just the truth. About 15% of all serial killers are female. Oftentimes when females are killing, they'll kill with a male partner, and usually they're doing it at the behest of a male partner. When females kill on their own, I think it's also not as salacious or not as juicy, right? When females kill on their own as serial killers, they're usually doing so for utility, for a reason. So, And usually that's, that's about money. Usually women who kill are doing so because of money. Whereas we tend to be more fascinated with the male serial killer because the male serial killer's motives are typically more sexual or violent in nature or both. So I think for the reasons, for those two reasons, one, that there still aren't as many female serial killers, and two, the motives are maybe not as what, you know, we would deem exciting. I put that in quotes. That would be the reason why the female serial killer doesn't receive the same type of attention as the male serial killer does. Okay, so thank you everyone for your support. Thank you, patrons. Thank you listeners. Thank you for your questions and for your emails. We really enjoy reading them and engaging with you guys. And now today's episode. We hope you enjoy. All right, so let's get to it. Crystal Gail Mangum. Do you know who she is? I do not. Wonderful. I love telling a new story to you, Amy. Crystal Mangum was born in July of 1978 in Durham, North Carolina, where she was raised as the youngest of three children. Her dad was a truck driver and her mom was a homemaker and money was tight. In high school, Crystal got involved with an older man. She was about 14 or 15 and he was about 27. And Crystal said he and some other men kidnapped her at a certain point and sexually assaulted her. But her parents reportedly did not believe Crystal. So what did Crystal do? Well, she joined the Navy after high school, and she had a brief marriage to a man named Kenneth McNeil. But after that relationship ended, she had an affair with a naval officer with whom she had two children. She received an honorable discharge, but the relationship ended. Crystal then went on to go to college and got a degree in criminal psychology. But she was having trouble making ends meet, especially because at that point she had a third child. So now she's essentially a single mother with three children and a degree, but we know that that doesn't always mean it's easy to get a job. Reportedly, she was also working towards her master's degree as well. I want to mention here, Crystal had a previous criminal record, having been arrested in 2002 for stealing a cab while intoxicated and leading police on a high-speed chase, for which she served a few weekends in jail, paid fines and restitution to be followed by a term of probation. So Fast forward, Crystal met Reginald Day when he came to paint her aunt's home in January of 2011. They clicked and Reggie invited Crystal to come live with him as a roommate and share the rent. So she and her children would move in with him. She was living with her aunt. Reportedly, she wanted to get out. But once Crystal moved in, the relationship very quickly blossomed into a romance rather than a roommate situation.
1: I'm assuming she knew that was going to happen. People don't just say, hey, you want to live with me all the time, right? It's
0: not very normal and it happens super quickly. Yeah. And I mean, maybe she already had plans of it. Or maybe I'm not she really liked sure. him. Oh, yeah. No, reportedly, and we'll talk about him. He was a very likable guy. Mm-hmm. Um, so their romance blossomed very quickly but it would sour just as quickly as it blossomed. How old
1: were her children? Were they young at this point?
0: They were young children. Yeah, she had three younger Mm -hmm. children. Early in the morning of April 3rd, 2011, in Durham, North Carolina, 46-year-old Reginald Day was stabbed in his home in the abdomen, but managed to get to his nephew's home, Carlos Wilson, located just next door, and Wilson called an ambulance right away. So as we just discussed, Reggie lived with Crystal and her three children, but Crystal and the children were gone when the police arrived on the scene. When the police came to the apartment, it was very obvious that there had been a struggle. On the scene, there were various knives strewn about the apartment, but like a lot of knives, like six or seven of them. The mattress was off the bed and up against a wall. There was a door with a hole in it, and it was off the hinges. And there was, there was blood spatter. There were also clumps of hair on the floor. So a struggle was obvious. What had happened earlier that evening is that Reggie had uh, attended a party with Crystal with family. And by all reports, they seemed like they were having a great time. They were happy. Nothing was wrong. But they come home and something happens. Because a few hours after the attack on Reggie, a 911 call is made by Crystal's son, who claims that his mom stabbed someone in self-defense because a man had beat her up. So the paramedics respond and police had to take Crystal physically off of Liddy Howard's floor. And that was a friend of Crystal's who was watching her kids that night. So Crystal had gone to Liddy's home around 4 a.m. and told Liddy that Reggie had assaulted her. So the police reported Crystal was splayed out on the floor. She was clearly very disoriented. They said that she was sleeping, actually. And she was taken to the police station right away, but she did not talk to the police. She asked for a lawyer, probably because, you know, she has a criminal history and knows how this goes. Mm -hmm. So what did she look like at the time? Well, she had visible injuries. She had some cuts, scrapes. It looked like her lip was a little bit fat from what I saw. And I always encourage people, listeners, to go ahead and just look at the, the photo from that night. So she has injuries, but they're not what I would characterize on the surface as severe injuries. They didn't look that way. Reggie was, at the time, alive, and he was at Duke Medical Center, where he was stabilized after surgery. The knife had actually, because he had sustained the knife wound in the side, it pierced his colon and his spleen. But the way they described it is that it was nicked, so he survived. And so at this point, he is, you know, stabilizing, and the police want to talk to him right away, because as we know, you know, the information you get right after an event is the most valuable. So what did Reggie have to say about this incident? He and Crystal went to his cousin's party and that they had a wonderful time. Reportedly, they both drank a lot. And when they returned, probably around 2 a.m. to the apartment complex, Crystal ran into a police officer. I believe his name was Officer King. He was a local police officer who Crystal knew. And apparently she got a little flirtatious with him and Reggie got mad. Tensions escalated pretty quickly, and Reggie started yelling at her, starting a fight outside with Crystal at this late hour, On talking about how she was flirting with another man and other men in general. And the officer that Crystal knew actually told them that they needed to quiet it down and take their problems inside the house, which they did. Reggie said after they entered the apartment, they continued to fight. And he admitted to hitting her, and he said that he was angry and that she locked herself in the bathroom, making a call to ask someone to come pick her up. Reggie said that he was so angry that he broke down the bathroom door and pulled Crystal out by her hair, but then let her go. And he said that Crystal became enraged, grabbing a knife from the kitchen and stabbing him, which still might make this a self-defense case, But the knives that were seemingly staged around the apartment told somewhat of a different story. However, Reggie's admitting right here, he assaulted her. He says, though, and here's going to be the key part of his story, that after he pulled her out at some point, he let her go. And he's he's like, fine, forget it. I'm walking away. I'm not going to do this. Crystal was charged with assault with a deadly weapon with the intent to kill. But then Reggie's condition worsened in the hospital and Reggie passed away. And now Crystal was charged for murder. But was this really about the crime, or was this about Crystal's past in Durham, North Carolina, since Crystal is one of the most famous residents of Durham? <laughs> One night in March 2006, Crystal was hired as a stripper for the Duke lacrosse team.
1: Now I know who this woman is.
0: Okay, because you know the famous Duke lacrosse scandal. So mm-hmm. Crystal is at the center. She is the Duke lacrosse rape team accuser. Mm-hmm. The lacrosse players had requested white strippers, but Crystal and her partner were black and Asian. Crystal said that the players yelled at her and called her racial slurs. And then she said that they physically assaulted her and sexually assaulted her. Then they left. So it was her and the the other woman's last name was Roberts. And so they wind up leaving the house and wind up in a grocery store parking lot where they have some type of argument. So Robert says she wanted Mangum to get out of her car. She said she was drunk and she wanted her out. But Mangum's arrested in that parking lot for public intoxication because police officers saw this occurring. So it's during the time that she's being held at jail for this arrest that she says she was raped by the lacrosse players. District Attorney Mike Nifung brought charges against three lacrosse players in the matter of days. And let me tell you how Mangum identified her assailants. She was shown a photo lineup that included every male from the party. And she was supposed to pick
1: which ones assaulted her.
0: Yes, but do you understand the implication? They're showing her. Yes, of course, because they all look familiar to her. Every, anyone she picks is, it will have been at that party. Yeah,
1: so there's no innocent bystanders. This is a tainted lineup. Yeah, for sure.
0: Tainted lineup right from the start. And so she picks three young males from that. OK, Mangum changed her story several times. But this story of the young black working class woman versus the privileged white athletes became a media sensation. And Nifeng was up for reelection and he wanted to look good is really what happened here. Roberts, who was with Mangum, she was the other um, stripper for the party, says that the rape never happened. She said that the story was not true. So what did Nifung do? He took DNA from the players, from the party, but none of their DNA was found in Mangum, but rather her boyfriend's DNA was found in her. They did a rape kit? Yes, they did. Okay. So they got, you know, again, mm-hmm. DNA from her and they found her boyfriend's, but they did not find any of those players she accused.
1: But he, he kept going, though, the prosecutor.
0: Well, what he did was even worse. He withheld this information what we know when a prosecutor withholds information that would be exculpatory is this is a Brady violation. He buried that information. Mm -hmm. And I mean, what happened after that became really a scandal. So what happened to him, the district attorney, he resigned. He was disbarred. He was also convicted of I believe withholding information and obstruction. He was, for which, by the way, he served one day in jail. <laughs> so, was that a fair sentence? Probably not, but he did lose his career and he's really disgraced. And interestingly, another of his cases had the conviction overturned for similar conduct. And this was a double murder case where I believe he withheld a- another type of uh, investigative report. And that happened several years after the fact. So Crystal's story really came into question, though, as the evidence, it just wasn't adding up. It wasn't supporting her claims. And what you probably remember, and I'm not sure if everyone else does, is that the boys were exonerated, leaving Crystal as the girl who cried wolf, Mm -hmm. so to speak. So she was going to have a rough go. She did have a rough go after that in Durham. And one of the documentaries that I watched about this case You know, had some of her friends talking about how no one would hire her after that. No one. She couldn't get work.
1: Understandably.
0: Yeah. Understandable or not. She had a rough go in Durham. She stayed, though.
1: She didn't get perjury charges or anything? Like, did she ever testify on the stand, too?
0: She did not. And she did not receive any type of perjury charges either. But her life was certainly not easy after that, even with college education. you're
1: going to implicate people... For a crime that never occurred then, your life shouldn't be easy.
0: No, it shouldn't be. I read something too. I followed up because I was like curious about how their lives turned out, the boys who were accused. And- it looked like all three of them really landed on their feet and did well. Yeah. I
1: mean, I, I think, Well, because they were white privileged boys to begin with, right?
0: Well, they were. And yeah. that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I guess their exonerations were also... Some exonerations, as you know, are kind of in name and mm-hmm. others are really believed. Yeah, of course. So I think, yep. you know, their exoneration was believed mm-hmm. by most.
1: When was the Duke Lacrosse?
0: Okay. So the Duke Lacrosse rape case took place in 2006. Mm -hmm. And then Crystal's fight with Reginald Day in which she stabbed him took place in 2011. I'm glad you put that out because it's good to have the timeline. Mm -hmm. And now let's fast forward two years to early November 2013 Mm -hmm. when Crystal would go on trial in Durham because she was charged, as I said before, and the charge was upped to murder because Reginald died. So she wouldn't plead. She would not plead because her story was that it was Mm self-defense. And that's what she's going in with. Doesn't sound like self-defense
1: to me. Mm,
0: We'll get there. I'm curious to hear why you think. Mm -hmm. Actually, I can't wait to hear why you think that. But let's talk about this. The first thing, and I saw her attorney speak about this, is no change of venue request. So her attorney said that they couldn't get a fair trial anywhere in the country. So why even request a change of venue?
1: Oh, they didn't even bother requesting. No. She is
0: literally famous in, you know, I mean, yes, people knew she was, but Not so famous that every person in every region Mm -hmm. is going to know who she is, right? It happened right
1: there in Durham.
0: I think number one thing would have been a request for a change of venue. You agree with this? I
1: 100% agree with that. Okay.
0: So the prosecutor calls Milton Walker to the stand. And this is an ex-boyfriend of Crystal's. And this was not good for Crystal. Milton describes an incident about a year before the one between Crystal and Reginald, in which Crystal set his clothes on fire and became physical with him, threatening him with a knife. She was convicted of injury to personal property, child endangerment because there were children in the home, her own, and resisting arrest. And she spent a few months in jail for this. So this was extremely damning to Crystal's defense.
1: Why were they allowed to? How was that relevant to the case? Prior conduct, prior
0: similar conduct, he, she threatened him with a knife. So the prosecutor has a good point to say this
1: is what Crystal n- does. And she, she's been convicted for this before. But judges have a lot of discretion there because we also hear cases where they say it would be prejudicial to hear about prior behavior.
0: It's so true. I, I often wonder about the discretion that they use and the difference when they say, you know, is it more probative than prejudicial? And in this case, it just happened to work out that they believed that, you know, they should hear from her. I don't
1: I don't disagree, but I just want to point that out that there's other judges that would have not allowed that. I
0: don't disagree either, to be honest. Um, But yes, and I'm sure this was a very devastating piece. uh, This was devastating to her case. There's no doubt about it. He also I might want to point out that he did not want to be there. He only testified her ex-boyfriend apparently did not have hard feelings. And he only testified because he was subpoenaed and he had Mm -hmm. to. But otherwise, he wasn't that thrilled about it. The jury hears all this. This is not good. Crystal also decided to take the stand in her own defense, and she told the story of the argument between she and Reggie. Crystal said, and this is her version and how it differs from Reggie's, Crystal said that Reggie punched her and she fled to the bathroom. Reggie kicked down the door, dragged her out, and went to the kitchen and he grabbed knives out of the drawers and began throwing them at her. And that's why she said the mattress was down. She said she grabbed the mattress and pretty much hid behind it. She said that she eventually, after throwing knives, he got her, though, and got on her and was choking her, and she grabbed a knife on the floor and stabbed him in the abdomen. And that's how the stab wound occurred. The defense also introduced experts to help show that Reggie would not have died of the knife wound, but he went into cardiac arrest due to alcohol withdrawal, which caused him to go into a coma. And the family wound up ending his life support because he had brain damage.
1: That's interesting. So they're not even arguing. So obviously it's an affirmative defense. You're saying, yes, I did it, but. Yes. Because we talk a lot about, you know, what an affirmative defense means, So it's interesting that they're saying, yeah, she stabbed him, but there's no reason to say she's even responsible for his death because it's because of alcoholism. That's what they were trying to argue. They called medical examiner and pathologist
0: to speak to this. They had experts and they certainly had experts to show, like, remember, something did go wrong. He was on the mend, Mm -hmm. but he was, by all accounts, a serious drinker. So it did. it, It was some type of cardiac arrest. Um, and they argued that it was due to the alcohol withdrawal and that if he had been a healthy male, those knife wounds would not have been enough to kill him.
1: But then again, had it not been for the knife wounds, he would possibly still be here today. Well, that's so the prosecution's it's still yeah, argument. Exactly. It's, it's still going to be her exactly. fault regardless.
0: Mm-hmm. It was just the defense is trying to mount, you know, this of is course. their defense is self-defense. They're
1: trying to mitigate it, but I don't know. it's a tough one.
0: They're trying to mitigate it because they're arguing that, you know, she had to do this. She had to fight for her life. So I'm going to ask you what you think early. Normally, I wait till the end. But before I tell you what the jury deliberated on and what what they came to, based on the two
1: stories that I told you, do you have any idea where you're you're at with this? I'm having a little trouble understanding the 911 call by her son. How does that come into play? Did he see something or?
0: Very odd. So I believe that his mother came back to the house where he was. And I think she was hysterical. And she told him what happened. And related this story. He didn't
1: witness anything. He did not witness gotcha. anything. Okay. No. So at first, when you said she locked herself in the bathroom and then he walked away. And then I, I was thinking that she went back to him. And I was going to say that's not self-defense because of the issue of timing, right? That wasn't an imminent threat. But her story is that it was imminent. So this just becomes one of those he said, she said. It does become one of those. And I don't know that she wasn't credible, um, except
0: she doesn't have credibility.
1: I was going to say, unfortunately, she doesn't have the best track record. And unfortunately, what we do in the past is going to dictate how much people believe us in the future. It does. Yeah. So that's what I mean. I don't know that she didn't come across
0: as credible on the stand. But the problem is that everyone in Durham knows who she is. And she's the girl who lied about the duke. Lacrosse rape. Yep. So I think her credibility was probably And that shot. was a
1: big lie. That wasn't a lie to be taken lightly. Of course not. No, credibility means
0: everything to juries, right? If you get caught too with any lie, even so this is the we talk about this why people don't go yeah put their clients on the stand because mm-hmm. any small lie you get caught in destroys credit. They didn't bring that up though. No, they didn't, but the point was that they every, never every moved day. it from Durham. Everyone knew who she was. Mm-hmm. All right, well you didn't give me your final I'm sorry, uh, you don't do you think it's do you think it's self defense? I'll give you my opinion after. I'm gonna give you my opinion after.
1: It's really hard because I don't hear any corroborating Unless I'm missing something, there's no corroborating testimony from people that heard anything. Obviously, there's that officer that she was supposedly flirting with who said, take it inside. What about Reggie's words himself? When he was in the hospital, he admitted we got in a fight.
0: I hit her. I punched her. I kicked a door down. I dragged her up by her hair. They found clumps of hair. Well, he corroborates because,
1: a lot of the story himself. because well, He's probably not stupid and he knows that the evidence will show that, but he's going he's he's to stop short of saying that I then was throwing knives at her. So I don't know how much that helps here. I don't know how much that part helps either, okay. But I do have to say, for me, knowing her past, if I didn't know her past and I didn't know about the false allegations, I would probably be much quicker to believe her.
0: What about the fact that she pulled a knife on an ex-boyfriend a year before? Does that hurt her case, you think? Not as much as the false accusations, but it doesn't help. Okay. Um. So the jury deliberated on this and I think they went out for about six hours and they came back and she was charged with, First degree, second degree. I'm not sure if they threw anything else in, but so the jury comes back and they say not guilty to first degree murder, but guilty to second degree murder.
1: That makes sense because there's no there's no way to assess whether this was premeditated. It sounds like it was a crime of passion, heat of the moment. So actually my I, I was thinking,
0: why would they have charged her with first degree murder? I know they upcharge sometimes because they want to get a guilty verdict mm-hmm. to something lower, but there's no, I mean, I don't see any premeditation whatsoever here
1: no i don't either
0: crystal wound up getting the judge sentenced her to 14 to 18 years in prison there's a lot of you know with first degree murder there's really no variation and you get first degree you're looking at life with or without the possibility of parole or the death penalty when second degree murder comes into play there's a lot of variation you can get as little as 10 years or as much as 40 years yeah so that is kind of light so crystal is now serving her sentence at the north carolina correctional institution for women so where do I fall on this one at the end because I you know I watched a lot I read a lot I remember the case quite well the Duke case I'm conflicted I believe this was clearly not planned and I do believe that this became I do believe that the crime occurred because of a violent attack on her mm-hmm. I don't believe this was um, not precipitated at all and I don't believe this was her. You know, both, both parties agree that Reggie was the aggressor. He mm-hmm. started the fight, he physically attacked her. So, when she was at least
1: at, provoked, you're saying you she, think she, she was, was provoked,
0: okay. I believe, which again, this is not victim blaming, but this is a victim precipitation of mm-hmm. events. Mm-hmm. And so, there was a provocation mm-hmm. and she was physically attacked. Um, so, what happened afterwards, I think we both agree on about half the facts. What I think probably happened though is that I don't believe her story that he was, I don't believe the story that he got a bunch of knives out and started throwing them at her and she was protecting herself. I believe his version was the probably the appropriate one. Even if he minimized what he had done, I do believe that he attacked her. She was angry. She might've even been scared. Look, if if you got physically attacked like that, you still have a reason to say that I grabbed a knife because I was scared. He was—he had beat me. He let me go for a second. But So I believe it's more likely that she grabbed the knife after she was angry, and she stabbed him.
1: At which point, the right thing to do would have been just leaving, right? Because when we talk about self-defense, it's only it's only a valid defense if you had no other choice, right? If you could not leave well, or it, if your life was in imminent danger. If your life was in imminent
0: danger, unless you're in the stand your ground states, but should, yeah. that they weren't stand your ground. No. However, you could probably be, I don't know, a little sympathetic to someone who was just I'm not saying I'm completely sympathetic, but I'm a little bit sympathetic that she was not, you know, she didn't just pick up a knife and stab this guy because she was mad at him one night. Of course.
1: I mean, I'm also sympathetic to the fact that her past played such a role in the current situation. I don't know that that's fair. Again, if they changed the venue, maybe I think it would have given her a better shot, but. Yeah, I think so. For the sentencing, I think actually this is an appropriate
0: sentence because I believe it was second degree murder. And I think 14 to 18 years takes account the fact that she took someone's life, but there were mitigating factors. But I have to wonder what's going to happen to Crystal when she comes out. Like, will her time have rehabilitated her as well? Because Crystal has a past of arrests, of violent behavior, of resisting arrests, of displaying knives. She has, you know, she has quite the history. So I'm wondering, I guess that's my question. Will she come out rehabilitated or... When Crystal comes out and the next time she has a domestic incident or something, you know, an altercation with someone, will she then resort to, you know, setting someone's clothes on fire or pulling a knife? I'm not sure.
1: Well, I think it depends on how she spends her time. If she spends her time in programming and, you know, doing things to better herself. Also, if she takes responsibility, is she remorseful? Or does she really feel like she's the victim? Because if her her version of events is the correct one, This is just going to make her angry because no one believes her and she's serving time for protecting her life, in which case it'll make her bitter when she comes out. It might make her bitter, yeah. So she's and now, how old is
0: she now? So this happened in 2013 and she was sentenced then to 14 to 18, which means that she could get actually, if it's 14 to 18, she could probably be up for parole at like 11 years, I'd say, and... She's about our age, so she'll be in her mid-40s when she's up for parole. So I'd be very curious to see what the parole board you know, decides to do mm-hmm. or if she has to, you know, does she have to serve 85 mm-hmm. percent? But she'll still come out a fairly young woman. So I'm always curious about the age-out effect. We know that when offenders come out, I wouldn't worry about her. Like when we talked about Betty Broderick, mm-hmm. you know, coming out as a 70-year-old. Like she's aged out of crime mm-hmm. for the most part. But I wonder about a woman who comes out 45 who's you know served like you said an unjustified sentence and mm-hmm. will she be able to rehabilitate and assimilate back into society i don't know i guess we'll have to wait and see for her sake i hope she does me too all right amy well that's all i have for today thank Great. you so much thank you and that's a wrap we'll see everyone next time on women in crime women in crime is written and hosted by megan Sachs and amy schlossberg our producer and editor is james varga our music is composed by dessert media if you enjoy the show, you can get access to ad-free episodes, exclusive AMAs, and other bonus content for a small monthly contribution through Patreon. To find out more, visit patreon.com slash crime. Sources for today's episode come from NBC News, the News and Observer, an episode of Snapped, and an episode of Fatal Attraction.
1: Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends.